the theme of this retreat is insight and loving-kindness, or insight and metta. And so this talk this evening is about one of those aspects of loving-kindness, which is compassion. And I think it's something that we need to look at from many different angles, from the many different places we're at, at different times in our lives, because each time we do, we may discover something different about how we are facing the pain of this world, the pain of our hearts. And this is what compassion is. It's this love within us that's able to face the pain of the world, that's able to face the pain of our hearts. So I want to speak about compassion this evening in terms of its ecology, the landscape of compassion, the interrelationship between the world and our hearts. What is that landscape? From what I see and hear in the various communities that I'm connected with, my community at home and the Dharma friends that we have, which you among all of you are among all of you, uh, my sort of teaching world and uh, the places where I give service to apart from the Dharma world, I see that there's a growing sense of urgency within all of us, that's pretty universal, to offer our gifts, no matter how small we think they are, insignificant our energy may seem to be to ourselves, that we all want to offer something, we all want to give something, we want to touch the world, which is increasing in complexity and speed, there, maybe we, we don't uh, articulate it to ourselves so clearly, but there's a big part of ourselves that I hear and see from many of you that want to be able to touch the world with more simplicity, uh, a slowing downness in life, want to touch the world with more kindness. And we know we can't always do that, but that's our intention. And uh, it's a powerful intention. Equally as strong, I see, by the number of people who come to retreats, there's an urgency to go within and to go deeper and deeper within, not just to be happy or be satisfied with where we have gone so far in our spiritual journey, but to go even more deeply than we have before, to that place of that deep inner recognition of our goodness and our wisdom. To know this inner landscape is not an easy thing to do, but this is what we come here for. It's interesting and somewhat amazing, but sometimes it makes sense that we hear in this time of great uh, financial strife for most people in the world today, all over the world, that there are more and more people coming to retreats. Even though it may be difficult financially or difficult to get away from work, 
there's just a growing number and the waiting lists are longer than before or more people in, in every retreat. We all want to experience a clear, clearer view of how it is. Uh, maybe we know that up to this point we've reached some clarity in our understanding, in our ability to uh, perceive ourselves and the world in an honest way. But we know that it takes more than that. It takes a kind of sobering honesty, that waking up kind of honesty. Sometimes it's a courageous honesty to be able to admit things about ourselves, to ourselves and to others, that uh, we need to purify. So at times it takes a kind of unflinching courage, the courage to open to whatever is going on within us or near us, which is in our family, in our communities, or in the world. And we continually have this feeling of wanting to close down, but we, we know that we have to keep staying open, staying open, staying open to whatever's happening. To see the underpinnings of our personality is, um, like I said the other night, one humiliation after another. It's like, I have more cringing moments in the last years than I ever have because of the ability, I think, to be more honest with myself and uh, to be able to, I have to say with a lot of gratitude that it's wonderful to have Dharma friends uh, and partners like Steve and some of my good friends in my life that I'm able to just say, you know what, I saw this place in my heart today or yesterday when I was interacting with so-and-so and I feel really ashamed about it. And whatever we need to say just to be honest, just to confess, so to say, about what's going on. I think that's a very healthy thing to do is not, as long as we're not getting so identified with that part of ourselves. But to see the underpinnings of what this mind and body and personality are made up of is what we do when we come to a retreat like this. So I just uh, applaud all of you for coming in and taking your seat and taking a look every time. I know sometimes we actually need to fall asleep because it's so hard. (laughs) Actually, you know, it's a safety net sometimes to go off in fantasy because it's too much to take. Um, The last few times coming down here, I just smile with appreciation that you're all so eager to come in and sit. You're sometimes here, most of you or all of you are here before even the time, you know, to begin. I've said this quote before, but I'm still being inspired by it, so I just want to say it again for my sake, if not anybody else's. It talks about this unlayering, this exposing of these painful habit patterns, these underpinnings of our personality. And this is by Agnes Au, a wonderful writer. She was featured in Shambhala Sun. This was about Buddhist women uh, some years ago. She says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing 
to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. It's those last words that really get to me, that really say to me or call to me that that's, that's what I would like it to be more times than it is right now. So I, there's a possibility to see how life is vividly, truly, not how I want it to be, not how I don't want it to be, not covering it up in some fantasy or um, in denial, cowering in denial when seeing it. This is part of freedom for me. And it's through this process that we begin to discover all of that, what the habitual forces of the heart are that create this inner terrain. And what effect does that have on the outer terrain? So I see that ecology, that interconnection over and over again, what this inner terrain is doing that's affecting this outer terrain. I can see it in near ways with my, my own family members and, of course, how that ripples out into the world. So this is what our practice is asking us to answer. What inner habitual forces create an ecology of peace, harmony, happiness, on an individual level and on a social level. Just watching it in ourselves, we, we see the answer in terms of social level. Can we recognize this? Can we truly recognize this? And can we nourish that and incline towards that? This is what we do when we practice metta over and over and over again. It's, sometimes it's boring any of the practices, you know, all of the Brahma-vihara practices, the repetition, the going over it over and over again. But where in the world will you find that? A place completely supported to knowing the good, acknowledging the good, and inclining the mind towards that over and over again. For, I mean, a full hour is nothing, really, to do that in. So that what the Buddha said, what a person reflects upon over and over, to that his or her mind will incline. We see when we practice any of these practices that lead towards a wholesome, when it's known over and over again, our hearts go there automatically. It's not a matter of somebody like rem- reminding us to do that. It's a matter of the natural inclination of the heart being activated. It's there already. It needs to be activated. So can we recognize and nourish that, incline towards that? That's the question that's being asked of us as we do our practice. And the other question is that we're answering, what are the inner habitual forces that create an ecology of unrest, distress, disharmony, suffering, fear on an individual level, on a social level. I find it, um, I'm really grateful also for the ability to go when, when there's a 
time for myself to go to practice and I can report to my own teacher uh, all these places of my heart, distress, unrest, anxiety, uh, aversion, attachment, strong or weak, and to be able to be seen by that person as not being identified. He's not kind of uh, molding me into those places that that's me, that's who I am, but just being able to see the arising and passing away of it in my own heart. And so it helps me to be able to see that in myself so that on a social level, on a world level, I'm more able to see that in others. Can we be clear about all of this so that when these forces are recognized, if they're wholesome, they're nurtured. If they're unwholesome, we, um, we relinquish it. We relinquish that force within us. We don't give it power by acting on it or by speaking with that kind of force in the mind so that we're not putting those karmic, those strong karmic seeds in our uh, karmic stream. And so also that's hurting ourselves when we do that. And so also that we're not hurting others by when we see it in ourselves. We're not acting it out. We're not speaking it out. So in the Buddhist teaching, which I've mentioned a few times now, that it's all about nurturing what creates harmony, disarming what creates disharmony, what's harmful to ourselves and others. And then from there, wisdom can be, uh, can happen, can arise from that kind of wholesome attitude. Without doing this inner investigation, without clearly seeing this inner landscape, we can never hope to have a truthful effect on the world. The first part of what I was speaking about uh, in the beginning of how there are mostly all of us in different degrees of our lives we want to help in the world. But unless we see what's happening in our hearts, we won't have a strong effect on the world. We might even have a harmful effect if we're doing things with anger or self-righteousness or a sense of uh, that unrealistic, idealistic view of life. We can never hope to touch the world with kindness if we can't find that deep and strong sense of kindness within ourselves with which to act and speak in the world. Granted, when we do when we do this investigation and we nurture what leads to harmony and we disengage what leads to disharmony, maybe we won't change the world or even a little part of it. But in fact, transforming our own hearts is huge. It can be a real possibility. And that can send out ripples into the world that we may never, never see, but that actually happen. So the practice we're doing requires, the practice of opening our hearts, investigating what's going on, requires a tremendous amount of compassion. That love that's able to open unconditionally to not only to what is beautiful, but to open to what's difficult 
And granted, sometimes it's difficult to open to what's beautiful, especially our own goodness. But this is part of the unconditionality of metta, to be able to open to what's painful, and then metta becomes compassion. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. Where else can we have that much of an effect? I mean, most of you, many of you have children. I, I can't say I've had that strong effect on my own children. They have their own path. It's one of my famous um, equanimity phrases for myself. All beings, especially my own children, have their own path. (laughs) I really, really have no control over what their path is. I have influence, but stopping the hardships in their life, those close to me, maybe some influence, but much greater influence by stopping the atrocities of my own heart. So usually compassion is thought of in terms of helping or saving others, which is true, which is good, something that um, we need to really um, lean in towards. But we may altogether miss a very important first step if we put so much focus on this, and that is to bring that tender, loving care to the suffering of our own hearts to the places where it's hard for us. It may be, as we are here, we know we open to pain in the body. It's really hard to do that when we haven't developed that kind of um, fierce love to open to the pain of the body, that kind of fierce love to open to the pain of the atrocities that have happened in our own lives, that have hurt our hearts. We need to put a lot more work into that, a lot more energy into that than we can imagine. And compared to what we try to do in the world, sometimes I think it's so little, it's not enough. It's not enough care that we're giving ourselves. This is not a selfish act when we do that. It's really a wise act when we bring care to ourselves because, of course, then we're able to help others in a better way. We're really able to help others sometimes by not speaking. And as my children have told me, it's better not to speak. I can help them better (laughs) when I've been silent and I've just been with them with my... um, own compassion for their hardships without saying anything at all. So that tender-hearted care and willingness to face what's difficult in our hearts, in our own lives, do we pay enough attention to that? Um, And maybe we do already, maybe we think we do, but where are places that we could use more attention? That's a good question to answer in our practice. To develop the courage and the balance 
equanimity is a big part of this. I'll talk about it later. Um, the courage and the balance to open to the truth of how life is, the uncontrollability of life, because it's so changing all the time, the vulnerability of life. We're opening to this all the time, and we're seeing it moment to moment in our practice here, when we're sitting, when we're walking, when we see what happens when we eat or we don't eat. The Buddha said, there is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of, which keeps us bound on this cycle. And that is the noble truth of suffering. Not seeing the noble truth of suffering keeps us bound on the cycle of suffering. So it's compassion and karuna that is the main medicine of this, the most important initial medicine. It's one of the four Brahma-viharas. It's just a, a review for most of you. Brahma-viharas, Brahma means heavenly or divine. Vihara means abode. So it's one of the four abodes. Not outside of ourselves. This abode is in our hearts. It's what we discover or we rediscover in our hearts. Metta, or this unconditional love, is a love that holds uh, all beings in a sense of goodwill, this ability to offer all beings goodwill. When metta turns to suffering, the aspect of compassion comes out of that, karuna comes out of that. So metta is karuna when it's specifically turned towards suffering or pain. The ability to open to pain, to be with pain, with that kind of open-hearted friendliness, to befriend it in a way. And just to complete on the Brahma-viharas, when metta turns to joy, the aspect of sympathetic joy comes out, the ability to be happy for the happiness of others. And when there is goodwill or metta or open-heartedness with both uh, joy and suffering, it becomes equanimity, the ability to hold both without reactivity to either one the resting of the mind before it falls into the extreme of attachment or aversion. This is equanimity. So back to compassion, karuna. The description of compassion or karuna in the ancient texts is making the hearts of the good quiver when faced with the affliction of sorrow or pain. Making the hearts of the good quiver The chief characteristic is the wish or the inclination to remove that suffering, whether it's for others or for ourselves. The movement of the heart to alleviate, and then the natural readiness of the heart and the mind to take action. So sometimes when I tune in to that quivering in my my own experience, 
to be able to face the, the suffering in myself or in the world, I notice the quivering of the heart. I, it's, it's a palpable feeling. It's kind of a shaky feeling. It's a very um, physical feeling to me, subtle but physical. And maybe it's because, you know, just seeing what's going on in here or out there, the heart quivers, it shakes with kind of an aliveness. It's not, when I look at it more and more deeply, it's not a fear. It's more of like being alive in the face of suffering, being alive in the face of pain, not weakening or dying. It may quiver and want to open and close, but it's staying open and alive to it. It's interesting that when all this research was done scientifically about the lobes of the brain and what's going on in this lobe and that lobe, when those monks who had 10,000 hours of compassion practice were researched by putting all these thingamajigs on their uh, head, that part of the brain which acts, which wants to act immediately, was the part of the brain that is activated and that stayed activated during their compassion practice. This um, inclination to act towards the alleviation of suffering. And that's interesting that all of this was written, you know, about 500 years ago. Uh, No, 500 years after the death of the Buddha, about 2,000 years ago, these uh, understandings, some of these that I'm uh, speaking to you about were written. The willingness to act, uh, the movement of the heart, the natural readiness of the heart to move towards the alleviation of suffering. The teachings of the Dhamma are coming to us because of this great compassion, this inclination of the heart of the Buddha to relieve suffering, to be an agent for that in the world. And when I remember that, um, especially times when I'm feeling really, it's really hard to get through a certain time period of practice or life, And I remember that I'm riding on this wind of compassion, this wave of compassion. That's the teachings that have been handed down that I can practice. It gives me some reassurance and some kind of, even though far, some kind of direct connection with uh, my own root teacher, the Buddha. Because of compassion, we're more able to open to and face what's difficult. And when I can connect with that in my own heart and really know it, I can see that I'm facing it from the heart, not from my head, that I I can actually feel my heart going more towards what's happening instead of shrinking away from it. The vulnerability is what we face, um, but we can face it. And also, people tell me, it's not just facing it, and I see in myself too, it's bearing it. It's not just bearing it like under a great weight, but it's bearing it with great love. 
sometimes haven't you had this happen to you? I have for myself, and I've also, I've also been on both sides of it, where I've been feeling like I've been carrying a great burden of some um, difficulty in my own life, and somebody says to me, I'll bear this with you. But really, they're just giving me their love. And it's such a great feeling. It's, it really feels that love that was given, or that I can give sometimes, there's a recognition that the weight is lifted. So we can bear it because of love, because of that open-heartedness. This vulnerability is what we're born into as human beings. There's no one can escape it. Uh, no matter when, if we come to a retreat and we bring high feathered cushions to sit on and all the nesting material that we can possibly find at home. <laughs> I do that. Um, there's no way that we're going to get away from the vulnerability of this body, the vulnerability of this heart and of this mind. The first noble truth is expressed as, there is the truth of suffering. And sometimes I experience that suffering more precisely for me as that vulnerability to the way life is. There's change. Nothing stays the same. You know, sometimes it's comfortable, but soon after that, or maybe not so soon, but soon enough, it's difficult. And then I want the comfort again. And the wanting itself is suffering. So this is a truth we're all prone to, we're all uh, born into this vulnerability, which includes sickness, old age, and death, those heavenly Messengers are all around us, more visible these days than ever before. Someone in one of my classes, um, there was one time I taught at the local uh, clinic, Kaiser, and someone said, oh, this is just advanced common sense. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wasn't putting the Buddha's words or Dhamma into it at all. They just said, it, this is advanced common sense, but we don't think of it. We, we, our minds don't go there. We, because it's so hard, it's like we have this automatic impulse to distract ourselves. But in a retreat like this, we're giving loving attention to bringing it back to whatever we're experiencing, no matter what it is. The Buddha said that this first noble truth needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be known. And from there, wisdom can develop. If we don't go there, which is greatly helped by compassion, if we don't go there, then the whole unfolding of the truth of life and what is the cause of suffering, that there is a possibility for the end of suffering and the truth of the path of suffering won't be known to us so clearly. Or maybe we'll walk the path, but it won't be wholeheartedly. It won't be with a full understanding. So from compassion, wisdom can be developed. It takes 
a lot of compassion to open up to what is vulnerable, which is our human lives. And from compassion, that wisdom comes. And it's interesting that when wisdom is there, the natural outpouring of wisdom is compassion. Because as someone said, it's advanced common sense. You know, when we see how it is in the world, in our lives, what else can we do but give our love, but give our support, but give our help to those who, who need more support, who need more courage, who need to borrow our courage and our faith sometimes. So this compassion becomes the way it is in our lives, very natural. So it's compassion that opens to this, the universality of the truth, rather than if, we're, if we don't open to it, then we're in delusion because when we're not opening to the truth, we're in the untruth, the lies of life, the closing down, ignoring how it is, ignorance, delusion. When we're denying, closing down, not facing it. And we do this in many ways. Um, We do this by going off and um, doing other things, getting busy, you know, chuckled to myself when I heard Steve's talk on the mouse busying herself with mouse things. And I just thought of my own life busying myself with Kamala things, you know, (laughs) at home, children and grandchildren and fixing up my nest at home and all of that, which is wonderful to do. But sometimes to really admit to myself that, oh, Maybe this is just a distraction. Maybe I should just sit down once in a while and see how hard it is in my own heart sometimes. So this using our energy in delusion, not facing it, closing down, distracting oneself. Using the energy in attachment to staunchly be attached to some idea that maybe it shouldn't be this way. You know, the, the Republicans or the Democrats should be different than they are. Or, you know, the world should be different than it is. Or there shouldn't be any starving children anywhere in the world. There's enough food for everyone. Why isn't it different? You know, we're so attached to our idealistic, our idealistic ways of how it should be instead of using the energy to face how it is in the world. From time immemorial, they say, it's been like this. And um, can we use our, our energy to just face it and to do what we can just nearby to do our help? Or we use our energy in aversion, striking out what's going on. We, maybe we're not attached in an I, to our idealistic way, but it's more like we're acting it out more and we don't like the way it is. And we feel that aversion or that resistance to the way it is more. The Buddha said that it stands to reason these ways of relating to events, situations, and people only prolong the suffering. 
adding more and more layers of it. That's why we feel when we come to our retreat. It, we feel as if this unveiling or unlayering, you know, we get to one layer and ah, it's just a relief when we can see it going and get a little rest and then in no time at all another layer shows up, so to say, you know, and maybe it's not always like that, but that's one way that people experience it. When I've had to deal with angry people, of course, you know, I'm not fully liberated. I feel that that anger is activated in my own heart when people get angry and I feel it's uncalled for, and especially when people are angry towards me. And it still happens in my life. It happened to the Buddha. You know, why couldn't it happen to me? Of course. But I, I see that, oh, it's true. Here's anger there, and it's getting activated here. Why should I add another layer? Of course, I can say that now, but in the moment, I can't. <laughs> I can't I'm nowhere near that most of the time. You know, it's just being able to watch that being there and how the body feels hot and that wanting to just say, shut up, you know, to that person. It's not Steve, by the way. (laughs) Most of the time, to be perfectly truthful. Um, but when I can remember a little bit of it, it, it helps to channel my energy towards, you know, just noticing what's going on within me instead of needing to say something about out there. Um, a few years ago, it always helps to tell stories. So I kind of expose myself when I do. I realize that lately. That. Uh, <laughs> I'm, and I'm getting a little more and more vulnerable in my growing ma- maturity, at least with age. So um, anyway, a few years ago, a, a person that was an acquaintance and kind of a friend was really upset with something and wasn't upset with me personally, but something that was being done in our community. But it was all taken out on me. And so she came to me, because I was there. And so she came to me, and she really started yelling and screaming. No exaggeration. And a lot of it was pointed towards me, because maybe I could have done something about it, etc. And I really felt, I really felt in danger at that time. I've never been shouted at to that degree, even by my own mother. You know, and I was really reprimanded by my mother when I was small. And so I felt so, so um, violated. And, uh, and there were times that I really wanted to strike out at her, to strike back. But I really, at that time, I really felt, God, this is so much suffering inside of me. It's so, so painful. And there were moments, there were just glimmers when I realized she's coming, she's doing that because of the pain in her. That's where she's coming from. It was so painful that I, it just brought me to that place. Um, and so from that place, I was able to not strike out. I was able to not be 
so um, in violation of her space. I was able to say, you know, that's enough. (laughs) I can't take any more. I was able to protect my space as much as I could, even though it still went on. But it doesn't mean that you don't say, you know, that's enough. But it does mean, when, when you're compassionate, that you're able to see the suffering in the other person and in yourself at the same time. It's so helpful to be able to do that because then you see a bigger picture. It's not just all about me and that I'm violated and um, you're wrong and I'm right. It's about seeing suffering. It said that the proximate cause for compassion to arise is seeing suffering. And I, I felt that at that time. I could see some glimmers of compassion, although, you know, truthfully, it wasn't a big deal, but it was enough to just not add, it, add any more violation to the situation. So when we see it on a bigger, in a bigger place, we, it's not so personal. You just see the suffering within oneself, see the suffering in another, and you see it on a more impersonal level, and it's easier that way. It's not um, so easy to get to that place, but it can happen, and that can save us from putting unwholesome karmic seeds in our stream of life and also causing harm to the other person where that person would put those unwholesome karmic seeds in his or her own life force. So my pain becomes the pain. And um, it's just so much bigger than we think it is. It's not all about me. We're fortunate to live in times when we're exposed to exemplars of compassion and big-heartedness, like His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama. We were just watching um, a video the other night of a group of people who went to meet with His Holiness in Dharamsala. And uh, one of them, and it was about what to do about the uh, difficulty in Tibet with the Chinese uh, taking over and the harm that's being done. And um, one of them, one of uh, the people in the seminar said to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, suggested that maybe there should be some kind of way that uh, the, the U.S. would say that we're not going to help the Chinese people anymore and offer Chinese um, any kind of help that the U.S. is giving um, in food or in any kind of way that we might be giving some support. And His Holiness right away said, oh no, don't do that, because that will harm the people of China, the individuals, and they're human beings too. And right away he did not want any harm to come to them. Of course, he describes compassion as a sense of caring. These are his words, uh, p- 
paraphrasing, a sense of concern for the difficulties and pain of others. Not only family, friends, but enemies too, for concerning, uh, being concerned about their welfare, their health. If we analyze our feelings, he says, one thing becomes clear. If we think only of ourselves, if we forget about others, our minds are very small, very small. And in that small mind, the problems are very, very big. But the moment you develop a sense of concern for others, your heart, your mind becomes bigger. It makes sense. And the problems that you find in your own life can become smaller in that bigness. The result is more happiness for ourselves and others because we have a bigger heart, less anxiety, less fear. When you include others and their happiness, you yourself grow in happiness and peace. Part of the landscape of the heart of compassion is the near enemy. They call the near enemy of compassion that because it can seem like compassion when we have pity for ourselves or others. Oh, poor me. Oh, poor whoever. Those people over there in Tibet or that person next door to us. Despair can be this near enemy of compassion. The indirect opposite, they call it. An unhealthy kind of grief, the kind of grief where we're lost in our pain, where we're drowning in pain. Not that healthy kind of grief where we really need to experience what's truthfully there so it can be let go of. That's healthy. But we're just when we're just so locked in and identified with it that we can't let go, that's unhealthy. There's no clarity there. There's no balance. There's no courage. No wisdom can arise from that. It's a a place where this kind of pity, there's a story in Southeast Asia. I don't know if it's in all of Asia, but I know it's from Burma, where they say you see someone sinking in quicksand and you think you have compassion, but this is compassion without wisdom. And uh, it could be the near enemy of uh, pity for another. Someone sinking in quicksand, you jump in to help them. And instead of helping them, you too get sucked into the quicksand. So this is an unhealthy kind of grief or pity. It's a kind of compassion without wisdom, not having the clarity to really know what to do. An old story about my eldest daughter, um, they all get royalties, you know, for the stories I tell. So I, <laughs> someone asked me, do I have permission? And yes, I have permission to, to tell the stories. So my daughter Rona was in the hospital and she was undergoing some surgery because of um, uh, some cancer. But she's okay now. I have to say that. I always forget that. She's okay now. And... Um, so she was undergoing, in the recovery, she was undergoing a lot of pain. And 
it was really hard for me to see her undergo that pain. Um, I was tired from being there and helping her through it, and of course she was exhausted. And she wasn't getting the pain uh, uh, help for her pain on time, and so she was just kind of sinking in the quicksand. And I was standing next to the wall on the opposite side of her bed, and um, I didn't know what to do. And she said, Mom, you have to help. I can't stand this. You have to help, or some such thing. And I was just literally kind of slinking down the wall. I felt like, I don't know what I'm going to do. What can I do? I, I just felt so confused. And she said, Mom, don't go there. I need you, Mom. <laughs> you need to be strong, you know. And so then, of course, I got it together. It was just a few moments. And um, I just had to allow myself that, you know. I'm not the strong mom you think I'm always going to be. So, of course, go out to the nurse, help her. So we have to remember to be not just compassionate, but to be wise, to be clear. What can we do? And, and really consider it with wisdom before we act. Compassion helps us to get close to the suffering, but unless we have wisdom, we'll just, you know, drown ourselves. We'll just sink ourselves in the quicksand. There's, a, there's this funny story. It's not so funny, but it's strange from a Western point of view, coming from Cambodia. And Mahakosananda told this story. He was kind of like the Dalai Lama of Cambodia. I think all of you may know of him. Um, he did this long march for peace in Cambodia. Anyway, he says, compassion without wisdom is like finding a snake on the side of the road that's sickly and you decide you're going to help that snake. But instead of putting that snake in a proper place, you take that snake and you, give it, you put it in bed with you. I mean, you know, it's kind of a strange story, but I bet there are some analogies out there. <laughs> you, you take that snake to bed with you, and then you find in the morning that the snake has bitten you and you're dead, you know, or you're sick or something. So this is compassion without wisdom. Are we doing this in our lives? Or now to get on with this other, uh, you know, near enemy, uh, when we're so bogged down in the painful conditions of our life, it becomes our identity. You know, this kind of self-pity or um, so much despair <clears throat> or depression, it can become our identity. Um, we lead into life with our wounds. It becomes a habit pattern that everything is based around. And I, I say that understanding how I've done that too in my own life. You know, we, we become the victim, so to say, in our uh, psychological culture. As William Stafford says, this is part of one of his poems, they turn into pearls, this um, identification with being a victim. They turn into pearls. They take on a luster. 
they accumulate as decorations and badges, as trophies. This kind of sense of self, of victim being victim. We build this into a monolith of me and mine and who I am, my wounds, my hurts. So this is what happens when we um, get so identified with this place of the near enemy of compassion. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. It's specifically cruelty. You know, the far enemy of uh, metta or loving kindness is hatred. But in this one, it's cruelty because cruelty is active. It sort of acts out. It's, it acts out by if something is painful, it's, we strike out at it. We push it away or even hurt it. We want to hurt it because we want it to go away, or the only way we can get rid of our pain is to hurt another sometimes. Um, Cruelty is also closing down. That's when we're cruel to ourselves or turning away. So it's striking out at, uh, closing down, turning away. Different forms of cruelty, hurting others, hurting ourselves. We strike out with body, speech. We strike out with our minds. Sometimes, even though other people don't hear it or see it, we feel it, and it goes into our karmic stream that we bear the fruit of in terms of suffering at a later time. Anger, ill will, blame, judging, criticizing, resentment. Resentment. Someone said, resentment is like being stung by the same bee thousands of times. You know, just, it's, it's the same thing you resent. You're resenting, and you just, every time you remember it with, through resentment, it's like being stung by the same bee. Cruelty to ourselves. Actress Susan St. James lost her 14-year-old son in a plane crash. After years of anguish and rage, she finally was able to forgive everyone, to have compassion for everyone and everything that might be responsible for the accident. Her hard-earned observation was this, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. This is cruelty to ourselves. This is the far enemy. But because of compassion, we're able to forgive. Compassion arises for the giving of understanding. The giving of understanding is all beings want to be happy and all beings suffer that kind of understanding. More than that, but this is something basic. Compassion arises not only for the giving, forgiving, of understanding. It's also for the giving of the deepest kind of caring and love. It's also for the giving of wisdom. It's also for the kind of giving that's letting go, the kind of forgiving that feels like it's just letting go. Jerry Jampolsky, one of my uh, 
acquaintances in, on Maui, says, letting go, uh, forgiveness is letting go of all hopes of a better past. <laughs> you know? It's in, we need to let go of the past. And when we do, it makes space for something else to come in. I remember something struck me um, when someone done, had done forgiveness practice in a retreat. She said to me, after, that, after I was able to forgive a certain person, I felt like I called my spirit back from the past. And she said it felt like her spirit was locked in the past, and now it came back to the present moment. And there was space in her life for renewal. That was from forgiveness. There's um, Consider this dialogue between two former prisoners of war. One says to the other, Have you forgiven your captors yet? No, never, said the other one. Then the first one said, Well then, they still have you in prison, don't they? keeps us in the prison of the past. When we're able to give our good, when we're able to see not just the, the horrible places of a person's personality or where they're acting out, and we're, we're able to give our goodness, this is part of forgiving. And this is a, a story that um, has really touched me. This is the way that the Babemba tribe of South Africa handles these things. When a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he or she is placed in the center of the village, alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time, each recalling the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his or her lifetime. Each incident, every experience that can be recalled with every detail and accuracy is recounted. All his or her positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, kindnesses are recited carefully and at length This tribal ceremony often lasts for several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken. A joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. May this be so. Just in our own family, we have outcasts in our own family. We have outcasts of parts of ourselves in our own hearts. To consider the good, to reflect on the good of ourselves, is, a more pow- is one of the most powerful things we could ever do in our lives. So really take the time to do that whenever you feel the inclination. It may not be in our metta time here. It may be at another time. Maybe you're laying down in bed, or you're just sitting out there with the birds, or with little Bambi out there. So 
Forgiveness is compassion. Forgiveness is uh, the compassion that opens to what's difficult in our own hearts to forgive ourselves. I mean, it could be a whole series of talks on just that, that you all could give, each one of you. Forgiveness is opening to the hardships of others and seeing even their um, blame on us, being able to forgive that. It takes a long time sometimes, but it's possible. Forgiveness is like compassion because uh, there's a softening of the heart around it. There's a courage to be able to say, finally, I forgive you. I forgive myself. Forgiveness, like compassion, is a wisdom. It's wise to be compassionate. It's wise to forgive for our own heart's sake, for the sake of humanity. Forgiveness and compassion are wisdom because wisdom is letting go seeing the impermanent nature of everything. It's not that we let go, it's that letting go is acknowledged because that's what's happening when we really see the truth of life. Mm. I'll save this story for another time. So living an unfiltered, courageous life seeing the truth of life, the vividness of life without any lenses and being able to open to it, care for it, not hold on anywhere, not strike back anywhere, but be wise in our ability to respond. So I'd like to end with this from the Buddha. This is from, these are his words translated over all the years. Um, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.